welcome to Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian. I am your co-host for today, and uh, thank you so much for joining us. I'm in studio with Pastor Peter Martin. How you doing, bro? Doing good, man. <laughs> I don't know why that uh, it's so uh, fun to just say, how you doing, bro? Because we're already said hello today. But, uh, <laughs> it's the end of the day, and as every weekday, we, from 5 to 6 p.m., do a Reason for Hope Bible Answer Program, where you can chime in online whether it's on facebook or youtube or some of the other social media platforms that we live stream to <clears throat> and you can ask questions about the faith you can ask questions about uh, god's existence or uh, the interpretation of a specific passage of scripture or whether or not we can believe the bible what does the christian worldview teach in contrast to other world religions on and on and on as long as it's sincere from the heart a genuine seeking of, uh, of, of knowledge and understanding <clears throat> of the christian faith and worldview now we live stream to multiple platforms so i encourage you to check us out if you have not heard of us uh, or this program before but we live stream from tucson arizona uh, from our church, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you can catch us on <clears throat> Facebook at uh, CCF Tucson. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson, you can uh, engage with us there, pop your questions in the chat, and we'll engage with those questions, as I said, pertaining to the Bible, the Christian worldview, the Christian faith, uh, or comparative religions or, or whatnot, and uh, we'd be happy to, to attempt to address those questions. We also simultaneously live stream to YouTube. If you just go to YouTube and search for A Reason for Hope, you can find us there. And of course, if you do uh, engage with us on any of these social media platforms, we'd really appreciate it if you would like, share, subscribe, hit the notification bell. We also live stream all of our services and messages to these platforms each and every week. <clears throat> And uh, we are now, oh, by the way, YouTube, uh, if you want to engage there, it's at uh, A Reason for Hope 546 is our YouTube handle. And we are uh, really excited to invite you to follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on Twitter. And if you want to ask a question to be addressed on A Reason for Hope, you can just tweet out that question to Pastor Scott, and we will engage with it. Otherwise, uh, we'd encourage you to follow him on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at ScottR4H. That's the number four, ScottR4H. We are also going to start posting, and perhaps in the future, live streaming straight to Rumble. So if you want to check us out on Rumble, if you missed an episode and it's one of those platforms you'd prefer to watch there than anywhere else, then you can do that. And of course, if you do watch us on Rumble, you can follow us. We're trying to grow our, our Rumble presence. We just kind of started doing that, but we really, really appreciate that. And if you uh, kind of want to avoid the whole social media platform altogether, I'd invite you to visit our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com. calvarychristianfellowship.com, and then go to the Watch Live tab. And you can not only watch all our services live, as well as this program, you can even chat in the uh, live stream, your questions, make prayer requests, engage with other viewers. So we'd encourage you to do that. And uh, speaking of which, we have an app where you can watch our services. It has a nifty little Bible, a digital Bible there. You can leave notes, you can join chat groups, prayer groups, follow all upcoming events, and of course watch uh, or listen to archived messages. Our church teaches Bible by uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So if you are interested in studying through a book of the Bible, 
you can go to our archived messages and find them there and study along. <clears throat> you can download the app from the iTunes and of course Google Play Store. And we also live stream all of our services to Amazon Fire products. So if you wanna add our channel there or Roku, you can do so and follow along with our church and ministry. Now, if you have something a little more sensitive, you don't want to broadcast your name all over social media and you wanna just email us directly we can take email questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. With that being said, uh, again, it's a pleasure to have Peter here today. And it's uh, a custom of Peter to, right now you're covering thinkers who have really influenced the Western world, but in the worst possible in way. In the worst possible <laughs> way. <laughs> so we'll be covering that here in a moment, <laughs> and then we'll get to your questions. Before we do that, Peter, would you be so kind as to pray for our time together? Absolutely. Uh, well, Father, we love you, and we're so grateful for all the wonderful blessings and goodness that you show us on a daily basis. We thank you for the life that you give us. We thank you uh, not just for the eternal life that is offered through your Son, but just the physical life that we have in this world. Uh, we're grateful for all the wonderful things that you've shown us and are doing. I pray we would become more aware of your goodness and that we would spend this time focusing in on your word and truth. We're grateful for you, God, and in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So who's uh, the bad influence <laughs> on the Western mind that we are going to be taking a little glimpse of today? Yeah, so actually we're going to look at a group of people. They're you know, kind of traditionally called the romantic poets. We'll talk more about uh, who they are and why they're so important to our conversation, but primarily we're gonna be doing it through a guy named Percy Biche Shelley. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because his girlfriend, uh, who kind of thought of herself as more of his wife, even though he didn't think that way, he was more of a free love kind of cat, uh, wrote the very famous book, Frankenstein. And so these were obviously British, poets who lived around a little bit before and then after the French Revolution period. And they were very liberal and they were very progressive. They were rebelling a little bit away from, I guess you would call it, they were rebelling against the scientific revolution where everything was becoming hyper-materialistic and the imagination and the inner life of man was being stolen. And so these poets sought to kind of reinvigorate the imagination of man kind by using poetry, specifically poetry that was fixated upon nature, in order to help people uh, re-experience kind of the inner world of man and to draw them back to a simpler time, a, uh, a more prosperous time that is more in line with nature. Now the reason why I want to talk about the Romantics is, number one, they're some of the greatest poets who have ever existed, and they all knew one another and <laughs> enjoyed one another. I'm going to read some of their poetry for you guys today. But uh, another big reason why I want to talk about them is a lot of these thinkers that we've been going over, guys like Friedrich Nietzsche, and we've talked about Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, even the Marquis de Sade last, last time, and moving forward, we're going to go through guys like Karl Marx, Charles Darwin, Sigmund Freud, uh, and then into the modern age, guys like Michel Foucault, Derek Brown, uh, individuals like that. Now, these are high intellectual thinkers and theorizers. And you got to remember that the majority of people, while they haven't heard of these great thinkers, their ideas, right, these great intellectual ideas have been distilled down through various channels and, being, and been brought to the average person in a more palatable form, right? So the average person hasn't heard of guys like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but because of 
artists and because of professors and because of academics and because of politicians, these ideas have become mainstreamed and people, while they might not know the name, they know the ideas. And Shelley and the Romantics represent a very important distribution system that exists inside of our culture of these big ideas, and that would be the artists, right? What role does the artist have in taking these big ideas and making them palatable for the masses? Another thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that people in the arts, especially people in the high arts, are very intellectual. So I'm going to be reading some of these quotes from these guys, and you'll see very rapidly, these are not flower children <clears throat> roaming around the streets of California talking about their inner goddess or something. You know, these are, these are really, really academically bright people, right? And, uh, you know, as someone coming from the arts, can you resonate with that a little bit? Can you resonate with people in the arts being intellectual or do you see them being more free-floating emo emotional individuals? Well, being uh, an elite, brilliant thinker and artist as I am, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, when you know, it depends on the field. Yeah. I have often thought of uh, those who write comedy mm. or comedians to being uh, a little bit more um, intellectual. Mm. In order to be a good comedian, you have to have good wit. If you're Let's a good storyteller, yeah. you have to have good insight. And <clears throat> when you talk to some of, I mean, it depends on how much preparation they have to do, but those who just off the cuff are witty, and it, it te I tend to think that they have a little bit higher IQ. Right. <clears throat> but, uh, and, and then maybe some of your songwriters, but a lot of times, it, it, my impression would not be, that would be the opposite, that this is very emotive, anti-intellectualism. Mm. That's how you would characterize society in general mm. is anti-intellectual. Yeah. No, so I, I like how you put that, that it depends on the medium and it depends on the individual. So when I say like high arts, that's what I'm talking about is people at like the peak of their craft, you know, the artists, the artists, artists, you know, the people mm. that uh, in people in the field that look up to them. Uh, these people tend to be highly intellectual, but you also mentioned that there's a distinction between the types of medium. So people who are, say, in more verbal type of art forms, screenwriters, book novel writer, novelists, mm -hmm. uh, you said comedy, comedians. Well, my like field, uh, magicians are very intellectual. We have mm -hmm. a high rate of, <clears throat> I would say, atheism, because typically those who become enter into the field of prestidigitation mm -hmm. have already established <clears throat> a worldview of skepticism. Because mm -hmm. we sort of lifted the veil and we see Oz at the control panel and we go, okay, there's nothing really to this. There's already built into this, the, the thinking uh, a sense of skepticism. Mm. And with that comes the idea that, oh, well, if faith is kind of meaningless, therefore the pursuit of science and knowledge is what gives human meaning, mm. uh, humanity meaning. So uh, being a humanist would be high priority for those who are in the magical arts. Mm. Uh, unless you would think they'd be the superstitious kind, but it's the opposite. I have found, I don't, of course, I don't know every illusionist, but right. as I've run in those circles yeah. and, and kind of dip my fit, feet in the water there. Is it, you know, people who are professional artists, right? There, there are a lot of, you know, people who go to birthday parties and things like that, but to, <laughs> to make your living like you've done in that field, that's a, that's a small number of people proportionate to the population. Yes. You know, and that's a, that's a pretty tight-knit community, you say, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For those for those of us who <clears throat> who want to be in the community, I I have kind of sheltered myself yeah. over the decades. Best but, you uh, can. Yeah, I, I have I probably uh, to my rebuke, I probably should have been more involved in the community. I, one of the regrets that I have is that I was not more involved. But at, at early on, I was, was concerned that I would be more influenced by the community than mm -hmm. I would be influencing it. Yeah, to weigh those things. And so I had to like basically say, I don't want to be a part of a community that, you know, the majority of magicians are atheists. Yeah. <laughs> at least as far as I can tell, I, it seems to be a high, uh, at least on the professional level. Yeah. Those who are truly skilled, tend to have and very intelligent yeah. you know just so much knowledge of history and art and you know some of the most brilliant people i know are very well established and brilliant uh, entertainers and illusionists because magic is such a such a broad art form yeah that you can incorporate so much that you it's a it's a philosophy you mm. can you can you can inject into your art yeah really, really Really cool. Yeah, no, absolutely. So a couple things I wanted to, it, it may seem like I've taken a little bit of a detour, but it all works, <laughs> trust me. So uh, people who are out there who listen to this show, they know that I like to talk about the arts a lot and how it affects Christianity. Mm -hmm. And when we're going to be talking about Shelley, we're going to be talking, he, he wrote a very influential essay called A Defense of Poetry, and he talked about what the impact of the arts are on the individual. Because when he's talking about poetry, he's talking about the arts kind of broad writ. He's not talking about specifically poetry. Before you do that, <clears throat> when you say the romantic writers, mm -hmm. we don't mean romantic novels. No. <laughs> we don't mean romance. No. Define what that, why are they called the romantic writers? Yeah. There's a, there's a, an interesting history behind that terminology that has nothing to do with romance. Yeah, <laughs> no, sense. no, no. Uh, so there's actually a couple different views as to why that terminology took hold. Uh, one of the predominant ones is that it stems from the word uh, Roman, right? So the idea that a lot of these romantic authors, they were trying to revitalize Rome and the classical era, era through their artistry. Uh, other people believe that the idea of romance, the, the idea of the romantic uh, poets, and even romantic writers like Goethe was one of them as well, uh, is that they were trying to revitalize again a connection to nature, right? So it's not necessarily about love. I mean, they, they definitely talk about love a lot, but uh, it's not necessarily about love per se, but it's about a revitalization of, as I said, the inner man, right? As opposed to just uh, pure materialist view of the world in which we're just meat puppets walking around, uh, conducive to our own chemical reactions and our own stimul stimulus by our environments, right? They, they were trying to revitalize the idea of the inner man and give people a, a touch of that, what they were missing. And there's an importance there as well, because a lot of these romantics were not Christian. Uh, they, they were atheists. Uh, Shelley, in particular, was an atheist. He wrote an essay about atheism. And the reason why they're trying to do it is because the majority of people cannot live in the kind of Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin view of the world, where everything is meaningless and all we are is just matter in motion. There is no soul, there is no afterlife. It's just all what we perceive in our, in our natures that are predisposed by our mm -hmm. DNA, right? Most people can't live like that. They need something else, and that's what people like the romantic authors give them. They give them an understanding of their inner world that makes sense within an atheistic framework. So it's kind of a 
don't think too hard about it worldview of, yes, we're materialists. Yes, we mm-hmm. don't believe in anything transcendent, <clears throat> but they do believe in beauty and they do believe in goodness mm-hmm. and they do yeah. experience these things at a high level and think that they are significant. And the majority of people do that. They can't just deny all these things. And so they need an outlet. And a lot of these artists provide that mm-hmm. outlet for them. So even in uh, the magical world, it's like, okay, well, if you're an atheist and you believe that nothing matters, why are you there to entertain and to spark the imagination of people in magic, which you know doesn't exist, mm-hmm. you know? Where someone like you... Suspension of belief, things like that. Yeah. Right. Someone like you as a Christian, you see it as man's thirst for the supernatural. Mm-hmm. And why do people pursue sorcery and things throughout human history? It's because we have a thirst for the supernatural. Because, and you say... Because we're searching for genuine meaning and purpose in life, <clears throat> which cannot be attained without God right. and eternity. Right. So you're, in a weird way, you know, to put it this way, you're an intellectually consistent artist. Because you are talking about what the transcendent experiences that people have, even in something like a magic show, what they're pointing to. They are pointing to something higher. Mm. Whereas an atheist has to say, hey, all these transcendent experiences where you want so desperately to believe in the supernatural, it's just an illusion. Mm. It's all fake. You know, you just you just think that you want something like this when in reality it's just all an illusion. It's just all manufactured, you know? Well, the other reason they call them the romantic writers is because of that romanticism worldview which mm-hmm. is one of the flowers that grow out of the flower bed of naturalism so right. you have marxism which is economic atheism freudianism right. which is psychological atheism um you've got uh, <clears throat> um evolution uh, darwin darwin <laughs> which um. is biological atheism and the romanticism is another philosophy that grows out of the foundation of naturalism right. the idea that nothing exist outside the natural world. There's no soul, immaterial existence. There's no spirits, demons, gods, nothing like that at all. Exactly. And they tend to focus in on the subjective life, the emotional over the intellectual life. The aesthetic life. life. The aesthetic over... uh, The objective truth doesn't really exist. Right. Uh, There's a a fascination with the gothic Mm -hmm. and the unknown. And so that's why they refer to them as the the romantic writers, because they come from that romanticism (coughs) sort of perspective of... uh, of, uh, well, like as you said, the, the foundation <coughs> being naturalism, even though they, when you when they play out the writings, uh, it's kind of like fantasizing that what if there was meaning and purpose in life? Yeah, <laughs> and right on that level. And the interesting thing is, is as I said, guys like Shelley, <coughs> who still exist all over today, right? They're they're in Hollywood, they're in the music industry, they're in Nashville, they're in. Even the Christian music industry, guys like this are there. You know, people, there are pastors who are like Shelley, you know. They're people who deny the existence of the supernatural, but they still pay homage to it. They they give some sort of a, a, a nod or a wink to the supernatural transcendent experiences of everyday life, but then they denigrate them. They say, but these are actually nothing. Mm-hmm. And they're intellectual enough, like I said, guys like Shelley... He read Rousseau. He understood Rousseau. And I tried my best in our sessions about Rousseau to make him as palatable as possible. But those of you guys who are listening, you would say, this is, a lot of it's over my head. A lot of it's very hard to digest. Guys like Shelley understood him very well. And they knew how to take his philosophy and make it palatable to the masses, right? Because the majority of people would listen to a guy like Rousseau and they would say, really? You're saying that there's nothing to love. 
that when I hold my newborn baby, there's nothing there, that I'm just an animal experiencing higher amounts of emotion so I could protect my child and take care for their needs. Like, there's got to be something more. <clears throat> Guys like Rousseau are never going to appeal to the masses because the majority of people will reject that philosophy based on their innate experiences. Guys like Shelley can give, again, homage to those experiences while si simultaneously denying what they're pointing to, right? So how many people today have heard of, heard of Richard Dawkins? Quite a few. Mm -hmm. How many people actually have read The Selfish Gene, put it down and said, this is awesome. This is how I want to live my life. This yeah. is so true. It's like, no, you, you have this very, very tiny percentage of people that could actually read that book, understand it, and then agree with the philosophy contained therein, which is an unbelievably depressing philosophy. Mm -hmm. right, the majority of people who read that book, if they ever tried, they wouldn't get through it. But even if they did, they would say, this is too depressing. I'm going to go back to living my life. You need people like progressive Christians or, again, these various uh, Hollywood elites in order to take that worldview and to disseminate it in a way that you can appreciate it. You know, I think Through about- Through artistic expression <coughs> of storytelling, which exactly. is what poetry is. It's, a, it's a, a, a medium. Exactly. For communicating. I think about the movie, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you watched that. Regrettably. Regrettably, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I thought it was a very interesting movie. I thought they used a lot of very fascinating techniques. Ultimately, it fell flat. Ultimately, it wasn't everything that people were making it out to be. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of disturbing stuff in there. I wouldn't recommend it to just yeah. anybody. But <clears throat> if you watch the movie, the whole point, it's a, it's a movie about the multiverse. The whole point is that if anything and everything is possible, then nothing is actually applicable and nothing actually matters. Right. So if we're living in Murphy's universe where anything that can happen will happen, Right. Some people just tend to focus on the negative aspects of Murphy's philosophy that anything bad that can happen will happen. But he's just saying if anything is plausible, it will eventually take place if you stretch out the time scale <clears throat> long enough. Now, if, if we're just living in Murphy's universe and anything that can happen will happen, then everything that happens inside of your life is not only meaningless, but it's ultimately meaningless. So it's meaningless in the state of your life, but it's ultimately meaningless in the state of the universe as a whole. Because every every variation of me exists, <clears throat> and therefore I am not unique, and right. I'm not significant. That's right. And therefore you're, the decisions, the ones that you're stressing out about today, that you're worried you're going to make the wrong one, it doesn't matter. Because anything, one of me already made it. And that's it's too right. Late. <laughs> and it's already too late. And one of you made the right decision. One of you made the wrong decision. So in a multiversal cosmos... Your life is completely meaningless. It has no basis whatsoever. So again, if a guy like Dawkins says that, people would say, oh man, that's too depressing. But if you watch a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once, which essentially is, well, yes, everything is meaningless, but we have family right in front of us, so love them all you can. People watch that and they leave thinking, oh, okay. You know, like they could, they could bear the weight of an unbearable philosophy a lot easier. Yeah, and what's sad is it's very anecdotal presentation of the philosophy. It's not actually a real caricature of the actual philosophy, right. just little nuggets that just, just persuade people to think one way or the other, and you build that over time, and you can change an entire culture in one generation. That's what the founders of MTV said. We are not here to just have music playing all day. Mm -hmm. We want to change a generation of kids. And they did. They did. Right. Congratulations, MTV. Yeah. <laughs> maybe not what you were goal. expecting. Maybe, yeah. maybe not. Yeah. So this is, this is from his essay, A Defense of Poetry. And uh, listen to, I think this is the most important phrase in this entire 
work, if you want to put it that way, this essay. It says, all things exist as they are perceived, at least in relation to the percipient. The mind is its own place and itself can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. He's quoting from Paradise Lost there, by the way. But poetry defeats the curse which binds us to the subjected, to the accident of surrounding impressions. Whether it spreads its own figure, figured curtain or withdraws life's dark veil from before the scene of things, it equally creates for us a being within our being. It makes us the inhabitant of a world to which the familiar world is a chaos. It reproduces the common universe of which we are portions and percipients, and it purges from our inward sight the film of familiarity which obscures from us the wonder of our being. It compels us to feel what we perceive and imagine that which we know. Now, this is what he's saying. It's, it's kind of a mouthful. And again, you could see that, hey, here's this poet. He's really skilled in poetry and things like that. You wouldn't expect him to be able to talk like that, but he can, right? So highly intellectual guy, and he's trying to give a defense as to why poetry is important. Because some of his intellectual friends, uh, this is specifically this essay was written in response to one of his friends, uh, are saying like, well, you know, we're in the intellectual age. Art has kind of run its course. Let's go to just intensive logistical fact-finding in order to find our meaning in the universe. And Shelley is arguing as a materialist. He's arguing for why poetry is important. Now, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I have my inner world, right? You have the world around you that is experienced in various ways, and it exists in various ways. But my inner world then interprets the physical world as a percipient of the physical world I am interpreting that physical world all the time through my own experiences, and those experiences are in my inner being, but they're inexpressible to other people. Because all the time, I'm having experiences with the world that you're not having. In science, we call it qualia, right? They're inexpressible experiences with the physical world. So if I say, I feel cold right now, now you know what it feels like when you feel cold. But you have no idea what it feels like when I feel cold. That's an inner experience that is kept away from you. It's something we can't share, right? I could tell you what it's like, but I can't actually share the experience with you. Now, what Shelley is saying is that the inner world of man is really all that matters. His reasoning for quoting Paradise Lost, especially he's quoting Satan, by the way, <laughs> is that the mind is its own place. We can make of reality whatever we want because, again, we don't live in a material world. We live in a psychological world. We live in a world in which reality is interpreted through my mind, and therefore my mind is at the bedrock of all reality. My inner world is all that matters. And real power in this world is my capacity to share my inner world with you. Well, how do you do that? You need a medium. You need an art form in order to directly share an inner experience with another human being. So if I'm going to talk about being cold, I could say, hey, it's really cold in here. But that doesn't mean anything to you unless I give you some sort of a medium to understand it. So I could paint a picture of an Arctic wasteland or something like that. Or I could use metaphor. I could say, man, it's like it's colder than a winter morning in here or something like that. Now you have a picture in your head in which you can experience what I'm experiencing. But I need that medium to do it. I can't do it directly through what we call prose, direct communication. And so Shelley is arguing that since poets have the ability to not only have an inner experience, but to express that inner experience in a way that others can experience it too, they have the highest power within a society. Uh, at the end of the poem, this is the very last phrase in the poem, he says this, 
Poets are the hierophants of an unapprehended inspiration, the mirrors of the gigantic shadows with which futurity casts upon the present, the world which expresses what they understand not, the trumpets which sing to battle and feel not what they inspire, the influence which is moved not, but it moves. Poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world, mm. right? So he's saying that we actually are defining what reality is for everybody else. So we have this high and holy process. <clears throat> uh, he did see himself as a legislator, as a priest, as a theologian, as a monk, right? In <clears throat> his entire self-aggrandizing essay, he is talking about how poets reside at the top of a particular society because of their ability to do this. Now, is he wrong or is he right? Well, it's certainly profound, and I think that his assessment of <clears throat> human nature is correct mm. in terms of how it responds to propositional truth through various mediums. Mm. And I think he's accurate because people, you know, as the saying goes, first art imitates life, then life imitates art, then life gets the very meaning for its existence from the arts. Mm. So if it's through the arts that has shaped culture, then his his tactical understanding is correct. Maybe mm. not what he's trying to pass on through the arts, through the poetry in, in that sense is, and I mean, obviously there was some really bad ideas. Yeah. <laughs> but it seems to me that he that he's right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And think about, you know, let's take an issue that you and I like to talk about a lot, the pro-life versus pro-choice issue. You could explain to someone until your face is blue about what a fetus at a particular stage of development looks like, that it looks like a human baby, it's just smaller, that's it, uh, that it has brain function, it has a heartbeat at less than six weeks old, right? You could explain all these facts to this person, but what really is going to change it, what, what we figured out in the pro-life movement, is that me simply showing someone an ultrasound of the unborn baby is gonna do more for that person than me explaining all the scientific facts mm -hmm. of what's going on in their womb. Now, this is something that the pro-choice side of the aisle understood really early on. They didn't talk about all the biological realities of, oh, it's not really a baby, and let me give you all the scientific proof, because they didn't have any, right? They didn't have the luxury of having any of the scientific evidence. What did they do? They focused on the stories of the mothers who had their lives ruined by unplanned pregnancies. Mm. And by doing that, they swayed the public opinion. They were able to write the narrative. They wrote the narrative, because that's all they had to rely upon was the narrative. Now, if we had been listening to Shelley, we would have realized that's the real power. It's not about me explaining to you what reality is. It's about me being able to correctly share with you an experience, because that's what's gonna move you. Now, he doesn't have a morality. This is the important thing about Shelley that you need to understand. Shelley didn't have a morality that would suggest that there are certain things that should be shared and certain things that shouldn't. In other words, the power of a poet is so powerful that they can share false experiences with people and make them think it's real. That's the scary thing about poets, right? That's what we see in the Bible, Right, we see guys like Satan is depicted as an artist in the Garden of Eden back in the book of Ezekiel. It says that he has timbrels and he was the cherubim that covered. The idea is that I can give you a false narrative, but if I could express it adequately, it's experienced as true, even though it's false. That's the power of a poet. That's the power of an artist. 
And once we understand that that potency is there, mm. we have to appreciate the power of art and we have to give it a lot of respect. We have to say, I need to discipline myself to only share what? True experiences with other people. Mm -hmm. I cannot just share any experience I have. I have to discipline myself to only share true yeah. experiences. Otherwise, I'm using my art form to deceive mm -hmm. as opposed to elevate. And that's the difference between when, when folks uh, criticize, well, you know, you're, you're a magician, you're lying to people. You're, mm. Well, no, I'm doing the very opposite. I, right. I tell them that a magician's craft is to create an illusion, a deception. Right. But I'm telling them, uh, someone once said, I wish I remembered the quote where it came from, but uh, magicians are the most honest people in the world. They tell you they're going to lie to you, deceive you, and then they proceed to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally fool your mind. Everything yeah. you're going to see is fake. Right. And then you do it. Right. <laughs> and then they're still baffled. <laughs> and the same thing you know, with a movie. It's like they're telling a fake story, but the experiences can be very real. And this is something that a lot of Christian artists don't understand, right? They, they only feel as though they can create Christian art that is representative of reality. I can only make biopics about Jesus. It's the only thing I make, because anything else is just a false story. No, no, no. Make a false story, but have the message and the experience contained within it be true, right? That's the whole point. So the things that you're doing are deception in the sense that you're not doing what people's eyes are perceiving you to be doing. However, the experience that you're giving them is real, and then you're able to point to why it's real. Okay, so you're experiencing a supernatural, but it's not actually supernatural, mm -hmm. but it does point to the fact that there's a thirst in your soul for something higher. Let me talk to you about what that is, right? So you're contextualizing the experience in the truth, where what these deceiving people like Shelley do is they say, well, I experienced it. That makes it true. Mm -hmm. So it's not... There's a reality, and I experience reality through my own perception, and then I share that through my art form. It's, no, 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 reality is my experience, and my power is to share that with others, regardless of what it actually has to say. Well, that's why these romantic writers were always uh, sort of portrayed as existentialists. Right. Existentialism is a another philosophy that springs out of the flower bed of naturalism, the idea that nothing exists out that, outside the natural world. And existentialism is a, a philosophy that we each are responsible for creating. Um, the, the We have to manufacture the meaning for our lives. What life means comes from us. It's subjective. It's not objective. There's not a transcendent God who exists outside of time and space in the universe who created us for a purpose, for a reason, to give us genuine, eternal, real meaning outside of ourselves no real meaning and purpose in life has to come from within. And since my experience is the only thing that I can uh, quantify, me sharing that experience and what it means to me is, should, is the only truth that there is. The, right. the, the saying, you know, my, my, my truth, truth yeah. is, ex comes exactly from this kind of thinking. Exactly, exactly. And that's why, again, in our world, when people have this idea of, well, you have to affirm my gender identity. Well, why do I have to affirm your gender identity? Because remember, their reality ex exists not in physical, concrete reality. The reality exists only in perceived reality. So if I'm not sharing your reality with you, it becomes less real. But if I share my your reality, I'm sorry, I share your reality with, with myself, then your reality becomes more real. So that's the power of the artist, and that's what Shelley is talking about. Now, 
I want to talk very briefly about the effects of technology because we've run a little over on this segment. But um, back in the day, if I was going to share an experience with someone, I had to have some skills, right? So if I went on top of a mountain and I wanted to tell someone what that experience was like, I would either have to be a very good poet or I would have to be a very good painter. But that, that's the only way is I'm going to be able to share that experience with you. Well, nowadays, everyone has a camera in their pocket. I don't have to be skilled at anything. I just have to be able to push a button, right? Now, what people have the ability to do is share their experiences without skill. So Shelley was comfortable in a world where there was only a tiny percentage of the population, the elites, that could do this, that had this power. So he's like, well, yeah, reality for me, right? I shape reality. I'm the unacknowledged legislature of the world because I can do this. I have this skill set. Mm -hmm. What he probably wouldn't have been too cogent with is a world in which everybody could share their inner experiences. Everybody has a technological advantage now over people in Shelley's day, where literally anyone can share their experience with everybody else, utilizing their own technological advancements, right? I could use a camera, I could use uh, a YouTube segment, even what we're doing right now. This is something that would have been impossible. I would have had to, if I wanted to disseminate my uh, my thoughts to other people, I would have to have real skill to be able to write in a cogent manner and to be able to give that to other people in a way that they would dedicate time to read my thoughts. Now they could just listen on the drive home, right? It doesn't require much of a sacrifice. So now I can share my experience easily with other people and therefore ideas are running rampant throughout our society. Experiences are running rampant throughout our society. And now everybody has an opportunity to become a narcissist because the, the idea of a narcissist is someone who only experiences their own reality and doesn't try to experience the reality of others. So in other words, my reality is true. My inner experiences are true, but yours aren't because I'm not you and I don't care. Where a fully integrated person in society says, my inner world is as important as your inner world. And I'm gonna do my best to try to understand what that is, right? That's, that's wow. an integrated member of society. But we're living in a society that's producing narcissists at a high rate because we no longer have to do that. I no longer have to experience your reality. And they're all poets technologically speaking. That's right. I could just disseminate my experiences however I want. Are these, uh, Shelley was French? <laughs> no, no, Shelley no. Was, English. was English, yeah. yeah. Because so, the, what was the literacy rates back then? Like it was not like very high. Way no, lower no, than they are yeah. today. And, and and Shelley and them, by the way, they, they actually, uh, if you read some of their poetry, it's actually very accessible. If you read this essay, you'll be like, well, that's really hard to read. The Romantic Poets are actually very easy to read. They intentionally dumb down their language to make it accessible to the common man. Mm. So I'm going to read an, a segment from a poem uh, by John Keats, who was the most brilliant of them. He was the best poet. He only wrote for like two years and then died. And he was just probably the best poet who's ever existed. This is my favorite poem of his. It's called Ode to a Grecian Urn. And this is just the last couple lines. So he's talking about a, a Greek urn that he, he viewed, and that's what's the inspiration for this poem. O attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou silent form dost trays, uh, tease us out of thought, as doth eternity cold pastoral. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe, then ours a friend to man to whom thou sayest, Beauty is true, truth beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. It was written in mm. uh, 1819. Now, beautiful poem, but what is he saying? How do we perceive truth? Through what is beautiful, through our experience. 
So he's saying that there is an anti-intellectual way that we access truth. If I experience something as true, that's what makes it true. Hmm. It's not a reality that underpins it. Now, these are the more liberal romantic poets. There actually were two conservative romantic poets. Uh, one was named William Wordsworth, who started out as liberal, but he became a conservative towards the end of his life. And the other was a guy named Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who was actually a Christian. Now, Coleridge, the reason why a lot of people don't uh, understand too much of his philosophy is because he was a heroin addict and he was almost an inaccessible thinker. But what he said about imagination, he answered the liberal romantic poets, and this is what he said. The primary imagination I hold to be a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation. This is what he's saying. He's saying, Shelley, you are not creating anything with your inner experience. You are participating with the eternal creation of God. There is a God, there is a concrete reality, and your imagination participates with God, but it doesn't create from itself. That's not how it works. So Coleridge actually gives the perfect middle answer between the liberal romantic poets and the hardcore materialists. So the hardcore materialists that most people aren't going to listen to, or the ascetic, even religious people who say the arts are bad, they would say your inner experience doesn't matter. All that matters is truth, right? Facts don't care about your feelings, yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. it just doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It just matters what's true. And that doesn't, period. That doesn't resonate with the general population, it especially doesn't. since literacy is increasing. You know, that was one of the great hallmarks of the um, that time period was mm. that literacy rates, you know, st started growing tremendously, yeah. so people could access this material. Exactly. And uh, obviously, how folks responded to cold-hearted <laughs> naturalism or uh, materialism or whatever versus this kind of emotive work. Right is very apparent. Absolutely. So you, you have on that side, mm -hmm. these, these hardcore aesthetic people, and no one's really going to resonate with that. Like you said, the average person is like, no, I have these inner experiences. I need someone to contextualize them. And the intellectuals are saying, don't try to contextualize them, ignore them. Mm -hmm. They don't matter. All that matters is truth. And a lot of Christians have fallen into that trap. All that matters is truth. And if I can convince someone into something, it makes it real for them. But on the other side, you have guys like Shelley who say, truth doesn't matter. All that matters is the inner experience of man. And my job is just to disseminate that to others. But then you have Coleridge right in the middle. What does he say? He says, no, you're both right and you're both wrong for the same exact reason. Hmm. Right? There is a truth. There is a truth with a capital T. There is an objective reality formed around the being of God by his eternal act of creation. However, your inner experience, your inner man, that's what interacts with God's creation. It's not primarily your mind, it's primarily your emotive experiences that help mm -hmm. you contextualize the world that you live in, the world that you inhabit. And artists can bring the two together. They can harmonize the intellectual core, cold hard facts with the emotive experience of everyday life. That's what the artist can do with the active imagination. And he believed that it was a great power. This is why the arts are so important within the Bible. This is why the biggest book in the Bible is a book of poems, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's the book of Psalms. So God has obviously put a lot of emphasis upon the arts. Why? Because they are a way to represent the inner experiences of man in a way that other people who are removed from the fact can experience it too, right? That's the whole point, mm -hmm. right? That's how we're supposed to disseminate the gospel that my inner experience with God 
is now being shared to you by my testimony and by my experiences with God. It's not me just talking you into Christianity. It's me trying to share the experience of God. The difference is, and some people would struggle with that because they're like, oh, you know, that's manipulation. We want people to be convinced by truth. It's like, yeah, but your experiences are true. That's the whole point, Mm -hmm. right? Your experiences do coalesce with the truth with a capital T. It's not just that I know God. It's that I have experienced God. I'm known by God, as Paul puts it, right? We have an actual experience with the divine that we can share with other people. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm. But again, the Lord is truth, and we need to put the two together. We can't leave one without the other. Mm. I like, uh, well, I, I don't know if I, I, if I know if it's correct or not, but William Lane Craig in his book, Reasonable Faith, describes truth that, that there are two facets of knowing that Christianity is true. And experiencing that it's true there's something dynamically unique to the christian experience that i know christianity is true because of the experience of the holy spirit mm. i cannot know that christianity is true sheer by sheer intellect right i can have reasons for believing that it's true but i can't know, i can believe that it's true but i can't know that it's true right and I don't know if you agree with that I would, differentiation, yeah. but I always thought yeah. that was kind of interesting. I would agree with that. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Peter. Maybe next week we can talk a little bit about um, how Christianity influenced the Renaissance. Yeah. You know, often we think the Renaissance was sort of like a secular movement. Right. But uh, you've, yeah. you've discovered, and, and I was quite surprised myself, that uh, that the opposite is true. It would yeah. be interesting to talk about. Absolutely. But uh, let's get to some questions. Uh, we got some Hungry questioners. <laughs> uh, Henry, is it true that yesterday was actually Easter and not April 9th, uh, Adrian and Peter? Uh, I have an atheist friend who makes fun of me. So uh, there's a, a, obviously uh, people who are not of the faith will poke at little discrepancies in how we practice and live out our faith. Mm. And sometimes when we celebrate something, and I don't know why people are so keen on when we have created a consistency of a date of observance, we want to remember something that happened in history, and be, but we want to put it on the calendar and have a consistency of when we celebrate that, that somehow if that's not on the actual day, historically <laughs> every time, right. that there's something flawed with the faith itself. Right. And obviously that's the case here, but how would you respond to that? Well, you got to remember that this particular holiday, the, the, the holiday of Easter, it's transposed from a lunar calendar system, right? So we use the solar calendar. We have 365 days within the year, and it's tracked by the revolution of the Earth around the sun. Now, ancient man was not able to do that, right? There's no way they could have understood how long it took for the Earth to revolve around the sun, but they could track the revolutions of the moon around the Earth, and that's what they did. So predominantly in the ancient world, what you had is lunar calendars. And so when you talk to people who are a part of cultures and civilizations that celebrate what we call lunar calendar holidays, you'll notice they jump around throughout the year. So if you if you have a relationship with a Muslim, for instance, Ramadan jumps around all over the place. Now, Judaism is a little interesting in the fact that they had a lunar calendar, but they add to it every now and then to try to even it out with the solar calendar. So uh, all their holidays tend to fall in the same season, right? You're, you're never going to have for them Passover in the fall, right? That's never going to happen. But Ramadan, like I said, goes all over the place within the the given year because the Muslims don't have the same kind of uh, self-correcting mechanism that the Jews did. But 
At any rate, you still have something that's going to move throughout the month, though, right? It's never going to fall on the same exact day. So we try to put Easter on the Sunday after Passover, after the Passover feast, because that's when Jesus rose from the dead, right? In the biblical narrative, Jesus was crucified on Friday, right? That would be sundown on Passover. And then he was in the tomb from sundown Friday through Saturday and rose from the dead Sunday morning. So we try to celebrate Easter that day, but, you know, does it always happen? <laughs> you know, Because I noticed that on uh, Daily Wire app, mm-hmm. Ben Shapiro was out Wednesday and he says, I'm gone for Easter. Right. For Passover. Happy yeah. Easter. So was that because we got Orthodox Jews believe Passover is to be a different date than evangelical Christians celebrate? Or So, you know, to be honest, I don't actually know too much about the celebration of Passover, like when exactly it happens and everything like that. Uh, I actually was under the impression that it always fell on the same. I mean, I'm sorry, that that the celebration of Easter always did coincide with the celebration of Passover. But there's a chance that it doesn't because, again, we're, we're transposing the holiday from a lunar calendar system. And it's not like we uh, proactively, ret- I'm sorry, yeah, proactively change the celebration of Easter based on the lunar calendar that the Jews use. So it is possible, like I said, that sometimes Easter is celebrated on a non-Passover weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that that happens too often, if ever, but I'm sure it does happen every now and then. But again, that doesn't prove the falsehood or the truth of Christianity, right? So if it well, fell on the actual Easter holiday, what's that? Orthodox Jews will celebrate Passover is like a week. It's an entire week, yeah. And so I think Wednesday was the end of Jewish Passover, was like the last segment of it. Hmm. And uh, so I don't know why that you would take that day off as opposed to the whole week or right. versus the first day of Passover. But uh, Yeah, so the way I've always understood it is that, again, Passover goes until that Friday. And then you go into your normal Shabbat celebration, which is sundown Friday into sundown mm-hmm. Saturday. So th- that's how I've always understood it. And, and remember, Jesus, the whole reason why they broke the legs of the people on the cross, Jesus was already dead at the point, was because they wanted them dead before sundown Friday. Because the idea is like they can't be up on the cross yeah. when it's Passover. Uh, number one, because the people can't watch. <laughs> And, and Sabbath and, and, as well, yeah. right? And they didn't want them to be up on Sabbath, so that's why they broke the legs. So, Because uh, Sabbath started at, in the evening, mm-hmm. to sundown to sundown. Right, right, absolutely. So I, I hope that helps. I mean, it's one of those very interesting things. I, non-believers tend to—antagonistic uh, non-believers, should I say, not, not all— uh, tend to just kind of poke fun at the ignorance of Christians, because one of the general conceptions within our modern day is that Christians are very ignorant— and they don't understand what they're doing. So I see some atheists make fun of the way that we pronounce the word Jesus because they're like, well, in Greek, it's actually not pronounced with the hard J, and it's like, and then in the Hebrew, it's Yeshua, and you guys don't even know how to pronounce your own Messiah's name correctly. Well, it's like, well, yeah, you know, like, (laughs) there are different ways to pronounce different names in different languages. We're pronouncing Jesus's name in our language, right? This is how you pronounce his name. Uh, It's not the exact way that it was said during his lifetime, but yeah, this is an acceptable way to pronounce his name, given our language. So a lot of times non-believers like to do that, just to kind of get under the skin of believers. I don't think there's any kind of good faith argumentation there, meaning I don't think that they're actually trying to get to something 
with making comments like that. And it might just be like a, a stupid kind of jab at you, just like a ha, you know, you're kind of dumb. And yeah. and it might be in good fun. Maybe they're your, a good friend and they're just like, ah, man, you're just kind of ignorant. It's just kind of a poke at your yeah. belief system. So you know, try to take it in good humor. But I wouldn't like overly invest time researching, well, why was it on, you know, that's not why they don't believe in Jesus. And, and you and figuring that out is not going to help. When them. someone is poking fun at you, you can always respond to someone's question like, oh, didn't you know, with a question. And Jesus did this often. Yeah. And what it does is it causes the questioner to open up in their assumptions or their presumptions of what you're, they're accusing you of. So if you were to say, well, are you suggesting that Christianity as a whole is anti-intellectual and not rooted in any kind of uh, truth? And if they say, well, yeah, I do agree with that, and then you can go through, and first you can po point out all the inconsistencies that atheists live with. They live yeah. with morality when they have no basis for objective moral values and so on. They live as if life has meaning and purpose when, as Rousseau points out, life does not actually have any genuine meaning and purpose in light of an atheistic worldview. Right. So you can point out all those inconsistencies and then show the historical and uh, how much Christianity is rooted in real history and how much truth the Christian experience corresponds to, you know, to reality. And so I actually love um, <laughs> there was this one radio show it happened like a decade ago. Richard Dawkins, who's a really prolific atheist, usually mocks Christianity, mocks religion in general, because uh, he thinks that that's the right uh, response to it. He believes he genuinely believes that religion is a net evil for mankind and that people would be much better off if we left in the rearview mirror. So he mocks it at, from that perspective. But he was on this one radio show with an intellectual Christian, and he's like, oh, you know, most you Christians, you don't even know what the word Bible means, and you don't even know what your own texts say, and you can't even list the, the, the various books that are contained. I've actually read it. Most Christians haven't even read the book. And he goes, okay, well, when, would you say that a primary text for atheists would be Darwin's book, The Origin of the Species? And Dawkins says, yeah, absolutely. Every atheist should read it. He's like, well, do you know the full title to that book? And he's like, well, Origin of the Species. He's like, no, that's not the full title. There's a full title to the book. And he's like, well, you know, obviously it's a, it's a, oh God. You know, <laughs> he like can't remember it. On, not only can he not remember it on air, but he actually words a prayer to a God he doesn't believe in to try to figure out what the title of the book is. So you could, if you want to poke fun back, you could do something like that. Mm -hmm. If you're really witty and quick on your feet, you could point out like, okay, well, what's something that atheists should know? And then you could kind of fire back at him and be like, okay, mm -hmm. well, that doesn't mean that, does that mean that you haven't thought through your worldview? Or does it just mean you don't know some trivial knowledge about yeah. what you're, what you're thinking, you know? Well said. Uh, next question is more, why, yeah, yeah we have, this is a question on YouTube. Thank you. I won't attempt the name. Um, <laughs> why are the 12 tribes listed in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, different from the 12 tribes of Israel? Hmm. Uh, there is a tribe of Manasseh in Revelation, but where's the tribe of, where the da tribe of Dan should be? Yeah. Uh, why are there seemingly different lists for the 12 tribes of Israel yeah. in the last book of the New Testament versus some of the lists in the Old Testament? Yeah, no, very quickly, there's a, there's a much longer answer as to why certain tribes, there's theories as to why certain tribes are left out of that particular, uh, particular list of the tribes of Israel, but what you have to remember is that there's actually 13 tribes in Israel. That's something that a lot of people forget. So remember, Jacob had 12 sons from which we get the 12 tribes, but one of his sons was a guy named Joseph. And because of the faithfulness of Joseph, 
actually Jacob divided his portion between his two sons, so Ephraim and Manasseh. So if you have 12 sons and one of them actually gets two tribes, well, how many tribes do you have then? You have 13 tribes. So there are actually 13 tribes within Israel, but they're always listed as 12. There's, uh, you know, for ancient man especially, numbers were very important. This is why even Matthew, he tries to, when he's doing his genealogies, he tries to keep them within increments of seven. Uh, John, in his books, he tends to, the number seven keeps popping up for him. He records seven miracles of Jesus. He records seven I am statements of Jesus. So for ancient man, like numeric consistency was a way, it was almost like an artistic way of harmonizing your own text. It wasn't done out of any like malice or trying to deceive or manipulate people. It was just there because that resonated with people in that time frame. In our time frame, we just resonate with just truth. Just give me the facts. I don't really care. But with them, there's like artistic reasons as to why they did that. So whenever you see the 12 tribes of Israel listed, there's always going to be one tribe left out or changed to a different one. And that's the reason is because there's actually 13, but it's never going to be listed as 13 tribes. It'll always be listed as 12. I didn't know that. I didn't know part of that. <laughs> well, thank you, Peter, and thank you all for tuning in. Uh, sorry we didn't get to all your questions, but we will uh, pick up tomorrow. So please tune in tomorrow, same place, same time. God bless you, and have a wonderful evening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.